much. I'd like to thank, first of all, the party here in uh, North Wales for inviting me up from the south of England to speak tonight. Like the character in uh, Beowulf, I've always wanted to speak uh, with a dragon in close proximity. So here we are in North Wales. I think this is my second visit uh, to North Wales. Now, what's been happening in the last couple of weeks, globally and nationally, is truly extraordinary. I never thought that I would see the basis of our entire economy, not like the depressions in the 1980s and the 90s, but uh, similar to the Great Depression in 29-30. I never thought I would really see it in my own life that international bankers and their political backers and appointees would be scrambling around the earth looking for money, given the fact that many of the uh, debts underneath Western economies are now so toxic that whole parts of our economy are in collapse. This is truly extraordinary. When Bush put 750 billion, billion dollars into, save the American banking system, he was doing so in the knowledge that they don't really know where these toxic assets are. It's almost an apocalyptic scenario, which sort of people who wrote sort of books along these lines, they were regarded as fiction in the 1970s. What's basically happened is that the unregulated markets of the 1980s and 90s have completely got out of control all around the world. It's interesting to notice that many of our police authorities here in Wales and throughout the rest of the country have money invested in Icelandic banks, money invested in South Korean banks, money invested in American banks, money invested in Israeli banks. They have money dispersed all over the world because they think they can make a margin on it or a margin on the margin of the margin of it. See, what's happened is that money has ceased to have any physical relationship with anything that's real, like this table in front of me with this Welsh flag on it. A hundred years ago, bar of gold related to a conceptual unit of exchange, money. There was something physical it could be tied to, uh, a term of value and a reference point, so that something that was theoretical had a physical counterpart. In the post-World War, that's increasingly been done away with. And we now have a situation where money sort of breeds on itself, exponentially. Many of these instruments which are causing these banks to collapse are because tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of mortgages were sold to people who many of the people knew when they sold them to them in the United States and here that they would default with the first sign of a depression, but they would be long out of those firms and they'd have made a good dividend for them and existing shareholders at that time. So you had an extreme short-termism in international capitalism. And the interesting thing is that they didn't really mind that the thing would be ruined later. So you have new ideas about debt. If you were in the city in the 1990s, I knew some people in the cities in the 1990s, their average salary, some of them at Goldman Sachs and Merrill Lynch, was 410000 a year. 410000 a year. And yet when Merrill Lynch collapsed the first time, people went from that to 4000 a year. And no pension. Because that's how radical it is. It swings about these chaotic sort of great spasms as money moves around the world. And the reason that was touched on by an earlier speaker from Liverpool as to why mass immigration has happened in our own society is because capital and labour, if you have an international economy, move around the world. Labour is immigration. And mass movements of peoples in and, outside, in and out of territories are because money moves around the world. Trade in the city of London can send money to Japan, can send 10 million pounds, uh, 9 million euro to Japan just by putting his thumb on a screen and the money moves to the Japanese exchange. Now, 
We've got a situation where the continuous decline of the stock market will impact upon ordinary people in the street. This is not something that's going on in the media. It's not a Hollywood movie that's put on for their own minor entertainment. It's quite real. Most people's pensions are down about a fifth now because of what has occurred. When Lehman Brothers collapsed, men on their exchange dealing floor were reduced from £310,000 a year to £3,000 a year. That's what they left with. They collected their um, belongings in a shoebox and they lost their pension in one go. That's how radical this type of capitalism is when it fails and when it goes down. And it's gone down because, in a sense, they didn't listen to reason about what they were doing in the 1990s. If you said that debt was something you couldn't sell and wasn't a commodity that you couldn't repackage, you were regarded as a reactionary, as a no-mark, who's somebody's law to the economics of the past, somebody who was pre-K and somebody who didn't know what a happening market was about. They packaged up debt, related it to certain assets, traded it with each other, based it upon the valuation of properties, the nature of which they didn't know that the people who bought them could repay those, debt, those mortgages in order to clear those assets and build up total equity in them. It's the equivalent of a nut under three cups, and you move the cups about, and eventually there isn't a nut under one of the cups. There's a very famous European painting by somebody called Hieronymus Bodge of a medieval sort of a mountebank, basically, <coughs> and the crowd's looking there, they're looking at the cups, they're looking for which one's got the nut underneath it, they're bemused, they're gawping, they're slightly silly and inane, he's got a charmed yet supercilious and yet sly look upon his face, it's one of those eternal images, and that, in a sense, is what's been going on recently. Any fool could have told you that if you think debt, before it's repaid, is an asset that you can lever out more debt on in order to run away with a little stipend in relation to it, that eventually it will collapse. And the interesting thing is that so many of these institutions bought into the Gordon Brown notion that there would never be a downturn again. For ten years, Brown was telling us in the House of Commons and elsewhere that he'd abolished boom and bust. When business is a cycle, it goes up and it goes down, like a human life. And the truth is that there will always be, if not a bust, then a downturn. And this is a downturn so radical, it has shocked the international elite. The thing that surprised me in the last couple of weeks is this extraordinary reversal of position that's been going on. To save the American banks, Bush is advocating things which are to the left wing of the left of the Democratic Party. And yet he has fought against these things all his life. They are nationalising these banks. They have a reluctance to use the word, but they are nationalising them on the model of the Swedish and uh, some of the Nordic economies who had trouble on a smaller scale like this in the early 90s. That's their precedent. Brown's never had an original idea in his life. His idea for this bailout, which Cameron is copying, and for, he has no answer to any of these things, incidentally, which is why his poll ratings are slipping now, not just because of Osborne's antics on yachts in Corfu, but also because, in a sense, he's been rendered redundant. Brown, who six, two months ago looked defeated, looked worried, looked lugubrious, looked sad, looked broken. He's now energised, almost like a leech that feeds on a wound. He's feeding on this crisis because he thinks he can make himself look important by attempting to solve it. But what they're doing by attempting to solve it is nationalising the toxic assets. These are the acute debts in these banks. And if they hadn't done this, the international system would have collapsed about two weeks ago.
would have collapsed about two weeks ago. It's not conspiratorial ravings on the margins of the margins of the internet. Strauss Kahn, who's the leading economist at the IMF, said the world economy came within five to six days of total fiscal banking collapse. This is collapsing country after country after country. Central banks having to intervene to prop banks up. If those banks had gone down, you could have had an unemployment rate in the societies where there had been such chaos created of 25%. 30% in one go, in one big bang. When the American insurance group, AIG, failed, they had debts of a trillion dollars. It went down straight away, just like that. They'd insured most of these assets with the American banks. When Lehman went down, they had $650 billion worth of debt. They pumped in $750 billion on top of that. That's essentially $2 trillion. America gets this money because it's the world reserve economy. Everyone else invests in the dollar because it's the unofficial currency of the world, as the pound sterling used to be when we were the imperial power. The history of the 20th century is America essentially took our empire from us because we exhausted ourselves in two world wars. And they've essentially replaced us as the hegemonic power. They now look worryingly at India and at China who are coming up. Now this may all seem a long way from North Wales, but the truth is our elite ceased to be British a long time ago and thinks of itself as part of an international group and an international solaria, partly based in London, lower tiers in Cardiff, lower tiers in Edinburgh, higher tiers in Brussels, higher tiers in New York. They see themselves uh, and they see these jobs as interchangeable. When Brown is in trouble, Mandelson, who loathes him personally as much as any two mainstream politicians have ever done, far more so than, say, Wilson and the other Brown did in the 60s. But he's brought him back, brought him back from the European Union as a Svengali and as a sort of witch doctor Monquet to work a bit of spin and to work a bit of magic in relation to this collapse which is occurring. And it's an extraordinary and systematic collapse because we're having two collapses rolled into one. One is the banks going down because they've made incredibly dodgy and very stupid and semi-criminal investments with other people's money that they never thought they would get see the day when they would be asked for it back. It's a sort of um, a schoolboy error writ large. It's, these securities are very complicated, but they are made deliberately complicated. When a businessman sells you something that's so complicated, even he can't explain it well, you know it's a scam. And that's what's been going on. Dressed up with endless language and jurisprudence and philosophy of law and rings of professors prating on about it. That's what's really been going on. It's a large scam. All of these things. Leverage, buyout deals, taking a company over, sacking half the staff, ripping out the assets of it, moving to another one. You know, these sorts of antics where you never create anything but more and more money that feeds on itself. That you then stick in one bank, that you then move to a Russian bank, that you then move to a Saudi bank, that you then move to a Japanese bank, that you then put in the American mortgage system. It feeds on itself, and in the end it will eat itself. There's a very bad um, pop band called Pop Will Eat Itself. <laughs> and what's happening is that this type of advanced fiscal sort of capitalism is eating itself. It's eating itself alive. And the basic reason, put in very simplistic terms, is because it doesn't make anything. It doesn't produce anything that's real. It just produces more and more money based upon debt. And we're all sucked into debt. Every
every man, every woman, every child in the womb owns aggregated out, indigenous or immigrant, in Britain, in Wales, at the present time, £10,000 each. And that excludes mortgages. That's all the cards, all the store cards and all the debit cards and all the other debts that people have amassed in the last 20 years to live the lifestyle that says, for a significant proportion of our people, that what's going on in this country isn't happening. Because people have privatised in certain classes, they privatise themselves out of what's going on. They don't have to live in the areas where it's occurring, they don't really wish to see it, they can be comforted by it. As parts of the country become third world, people begin to live in the way that the elites do in third world countries. In Venezuela, a rich man's daughter goes to the shop, they'll have several heavies with her with machine guns. And they'll go in four by fours and bazookas can come out the sides of them and this sort of thing. They live in gated areas where you go through and you swipe a card through a gate and grills open and you go into private compounds that are virtually outside the remit of the state. This is the sort of way in which the elite lives in South Africa. It's where the elite lives in Brazil. It's where the elite lives in the Caribbean. It's where the elite, it's how our elite partly live in London now. Partly live in London now. And certainly would live in Birmingham. London has changed to such a degree that it's unrecognisable from the city that it was 40 to 50 years ago. I mean, it's nice for me to speak to a meeting in uh, North Wales, because the last time I spoke to a meeting in uh, London, it was attacked by a small left-wing group um, who were uh, attacked the police, basically, and were gassed. You know, it's a dangerous word. They were gassed, sprayed with CS gas, and dragged off. And six were arrested. Antifa, this group was called, six were arrested, five were male and one uh, was female. Now, I watched this from a distance. It didn't look too female to me, but maybe it was some sort of uh, androgen in boots. You know, let's leave it at that. But the degree to which there's a great irony here, because as the international capitalist order of the present time fractures and becomes deeply unsteady, no one's looking to the left at all. Even they know it, even on their blogs and their websites here, in Wales, in Britain, all over the world, they know that people won't look to them. Because the sort of ultra-liberal capitalism that's failing at the moment, in a way, is the provenance of New Labour and the Conservatives, and to a lesser extent the reworked Liberal Democrats. But the far left have beliefs that are totally discredited by the failure of state socialism and communism in the 20th century. All the left can do is oppose us. That's their whole raison d'etre now. There are two sources of opposition to what is uh, failing at the present time. One are forms of religiosity, which the elite perceives as being the province of groups that have come into the society, such as Muslims who have an Islamist interpretation of their own faith, and the radical right within indigenous societies and population groups. They're the only two sources of real political opinion which are opposed to the present nexus. If Cameron gets in, in 2009 or 2010, he will not do one jot different to Brown, and Clegg will never get in, and, but may support some minority government, may go into coalition of the sort you have here in Wales, where they all say they loathe each other, but then after the election they pick up the pieces and they all collaborate. You've had uh, Labour on its own, because Labour's regarded to Wales as its fiefdom, it's regarded as a private province of its own, like parts of uh, Middle Scotland or parts of the northern cities, or the northeast of England, or part of Liverpool. Liverpool are regarded as a sort of fiefdom of their own. Now, 
Labour declines a bit, gets the Liberals in. The Liberals say they detest Labour, fight with them tooth and nail in the northern cities and in some London boroughs, but they go in with them in Cardiff Bay, just like that. Now, the Nationalists fly the party of Wales, fly Cymru. You seem to have dropped the Cymru, which is always very odd, because they're supposed to be Nationalists of a Welsh and Celtic character, admittedly, and yet that play Cymru's too Welsh a name. They just call themselves the party. The party's very totalitarian, isn't it? The party, dot, 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 like Albania rather than Wales, isn't it? You know, and now they've gone in with Labour after being daggers drawn for basically the whole of the 20th century. So this is a, it's very interesting and it's, it means that the pot is stirring even in Wales, even in Scotland where you have a minority Scottish nationalist government. But of course, what kinds of nationalism do these uh, Celtic nationalist parties offer? What they offer is a sort of non-British version of the liberalism that's on offer elsewhere. Anyone can come to Scotland, according to Abbott Salmon, who's an effective political speaker and activist within the mainstream currency of present Edinburgh politics. And yet at the same time, anyone can be Scottish, anyone can move to Scotland from anywhere in the world. The leader applied, as it's now called here in Wales, would say exactly the same thing. And they want to get out of the British Union, but they don't want to be on their own. Oh no, they don't want to be on their own. They don't want to be on their own at all. They want to get into the European Union firmer and in a more federal way. They want a Scottish province of a federal Europe because they're terrified to stand alone. No one seems to want to stand alone in this life. And one of the reasons is that they're all clinging on to each other and the life raft as the international capital system rocks around them, great waves come up onto the raft and blow a flew off. So this is the sort of situation that we see at the present time. People are literally clinging together. I've never quite seen in my own lifetime the international scenario of politicians, the international clerisy, our rulers if you like. I haven't seen them as frightened as this. Not in my lifetime. This is a major moment. This trumps anything like the oil crisis when the Arabs punished the West for supporting Israel and this sort of thing in the mid-70s. This is extraordinarily deep and very, very severe because we import most of what we sell here. We make nothing. The fiscal services are about a third of our effective economy. I was taken the last time I was in Liverpool for a ride around the industrial district of Liverpool and we found one factory making bouncy castles. This was once a city that provided industrial goods for the entire world. The entire industries in the uh, centre of Birmingham, for example, have been stripped out. Have you seen what's happened to Birmingham recently? Lots of English people who used to live in Birmingham now apparently live in Wales. So a Welsh nationalist leader has said, apparently, that lots of English people are moving to Wales to get away from what's happened in Birmingham. What has happened in Birmingham? Well, it's no longer the Chamberlain City, let's put it that way. What you've seen is in the centre of Birmingham, areas have become third worldized to the degree that they're unrecognisable as English areas. I've driven once through Hansworth. I was driven through Hansworth. Hansworth is 80% non-white and is a pretty big area right in the middle of the city. People in the English Midlands refer to it as the occupied territories. Like as if it's in the Middle East, but it's actually in the middle of England, in England's second city. Now we're in Wales, but these things are universal in the sense that they're happening all over Britain and they're happening all over the West and they're happening all over Western Europe. We are within a week or two, less than that, of possibly the election of the first non-white president in the history of the United States of America. And people will rub their heads and say, why is this going on? It's going on because the United States has changed out of all recognition. 
in the last 40 to 50 years. America's the third not wine. Many people seem to have well, just been oblivious to the extraordinary demographic transformation of the United States in the last 50 years. When people talk about the Kennedys, forget the false glamour and the bullet and who fired it, or bullets and who fired it, or them, and Marilyn Monroe and the secret bonking and all that. That's not the point. The real point about the Kennedys was the opening up to mass immigration from all over the world and the ending of the tacit but actual old, only white immigration policy, which had been institutionalised in the early 20s and which survived until the late 60s, similar to the Australian one. That's gone down. Now a third of America, when you add in Red Indians, as they used to be called, First Nation Americans now, and Afro-Americans, a third of the country is non-white. The whites are split between themselves and they're uncertain as the fiscal basis of their economy collapses. They're dividing pretty equally between the two candidates, actually, and the persons of colour make the difference. So unless all the polls are wrong and lots of people are lying to pollsters, which they often do, Obama will win. This will have interesting consequences because he's much less keen on a lot on foreign wars. And he's much more keen, as Clinton was to a certain degree, in staying at home. And in many ways, we're beginning to see very radically the beginning of the end of American power, the beginning of the end of their century. The 20th century was their century because fascism went down, communism went down, it was left standing, its model was left standing, everything else went down, and the West has been dominated by them for the last 50 years. If they're now going, what are they going to be like in 20 years? They produce very little, they're incredibly in debt, the Chinese control and manipulate most of their debt, and will maybe prevent them fighting wars in the future. We here are dragged into war after war because we can't say no to the United States. Okay. Because our politicians have no independent volition at all. Um, I once met Portillo years and years ago, and he said we can never oppose the United States on anything in terms of foreign policy. Because we're far weaker than we ever were, and we have to follow their line on virtually everything. They will protect us. They will defend us. If the Falklands happened again, or something similar, we couldn't even muster the naval force to go down to the end of um, the South Atlantic and, and a, sort of defeat a sort of ragtag and bobtail Latino regime. We have become subordinate to the United States, and those in our clerisy, our elite, who think that the United States isn't the answer, want to get close to Europe as an alternative model. In other words, whatever model they choose, Britain isn't the model or the first point of call, because they believe that Britain is over. They believe they can rule over the ruins, but it's the culture of the ruins, the ruins of culture. I know people, I've never met Cameron, but I've known quite a few of the others around him at this time, and they believe that all they can do is rule over the ruins of what's left. Labour have been very cynical since 97. When Blair came in, he was such a pathological liar and such an actor, and so convincing. He fooled many of our people for at least seven or eight years. You'd meet people, old dears and so on, and they'd say, oh, Tony Blair's a lovely man, lovely man and so on, because he's such an extraordinary political charlatan. I mean, Brown looks so poor in comparison to Blair's, sort of Blair's reptilian character, essentially, because Blair could argue for a Gulf War and against a Gulf War, as convincingly, just like a barrister, who doesn't believe in a word of it either way, he can look you straight in the eye, he can be quivering with inner emotion, his throat can be catching, but he's just a character who's arguing whatever spiel is put in front of him, or he feels he can get away with at the moment. And he fooled people for 
basically a parliamentary term and a half, four to six years easily. It's only the Iraq war that caught him out in egregious whoppers and lies that were so big and so wide and so stinking about we were going to be attacked by Saddam, that he had weapons of mass destruction that he could use in 45 minutes, that we needed to go to war to uh, deal with this unfortunate and apocalyptian uh, eventuality. When in actual fact he had none of these weapons, the sanctions had degraded and destroyed them to such a degree they could weaponise a few shells with a few chemical tips that could only be used inside their own deserts within 45 minutes. In other words, we were lied to and lied to and lied to to get us in on a war that the Americans didn't even really need us for. And when we got to Basra in the south of Iraq, we camped down there and all the Islamist militias shelled us 24 hours a day, night and day. And in order to pull back from the central palace to where we are now, 2,000 around the airport, training, quote-unquote, the new Iraqi army, we did a deal with the most militant militia, the Sadrists. Uh, and we did a deal with them that we would let out all of their prisoners, including ones who committed many, many capital crimes, they had the death penalty in Iraq, and uh, we let them out so they wouldn't attack us. They wouldn't attack us. The Iranians used to give $1,000, uh, US dollars, interestingly, for each British soldier killed. And they'd get, because the Shia militias in the south, the loyal to Iran. Saddam, for those who don't know, Saddam is not an Iraqi nationalist, he's a Sunni nationalist, he's loyal to his group in the middle of the country. We created Iraq. We created it. We pushed these groups together and they don't like each other, Kurds, Sunni, Shia. We did this. We're back there now, a hundred years on. In Iraq, in Afghanistan, doing America's bidding, doing the bidding of lobbies that are very powerful in the United States and have enormous influence over their government, in particular in relation to Mideast policy. But we cannot pursue an independent course because none of our elite thinks in nation-state terms anymore. They don't even think to the degree that de Gaulle and Churchill did, that we can have in some ways some independent path for ourselves. We have no independence because our politicians lack the will to have such an independent current of mind. Now, many people observe what's happened to this society in the last 50 years, and they think that forces are so cosmic and so irreversible that they've swept over things, that they've changed things out of all recognition, that they can really do nothing. And the sort of Thatcherite economics in the wake of sort of Labour's failures in the 70s that were preached and came into power in the 1980s have just convinced people further of that. You privatise your own life, you look after your own family, the country becomes your own sort of family and it's private concerns. You're there all right, I'm all right, you're all right, we're all right. And for the rest, you just sort of you watch the television but turn off what it means in your own mind. And lots of adults live like that. They sort of privatise their own sort of life and death. They live in little bubbles. People move about. Sort of two million whites have left London in the last 50 years. The Evening Standard hinted once that it was racial. Racial, the reason why they left, that there were demographic changes. I knew a very liberal chap who moved to get out of London, and I asked him ten times why he'd left, and uh, he broke down and cried. He broke down and cried because he said, I have to admit, I'm a bit of a racist, he said. <laughs> I said, I have to admit that I'm a bit of a racist because I left due to the fact that parts of South London are no, no longer recognisable, and I hate myself for that. <laughs> I hate myself for that, I said that. I said, well, why don't you hang yourself? I'm a Nietzschean. And I said, well, and he said, I wouldn't go that far. Because so, <laughs> he's living in a quite nice... We'll do it for him in Sussex. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. But 
it's interesting that you do hear more and more amongst many, many sort of quite liberal-minded people that they are deeply worried underneath the sort of carapace of political correctness and conformity. They're deeply worried. The people who were students, in uh, Trotsky students, you know, 30 years ago, they can, they see now many of the forces that they marched for with their sort of innocent straight, non-innocent fists in the air. Uh, they see the result of what has they brought about. Yeah. Collapse of the family, marriage as an institution sort of, sort of was discredited, um, marriages lasting 12 years. Ordinary people are behaving like Hollywood superstars, having four or five marriages in a lifetime. You've got a generation um, that's brought up, that's taught to revere drug addicts rather than soldiers and artists and scientists and architects. You've got a sort of uh, criminal subculture that's breeding now, that has no respect for anything and is out of control. We had a third of our army in Iraq three to five years ago, but Blair and Brown don't control the streets of Inner Birmingham. No. They don't control the streets of South London on a Saturday night. Lots of people, particularly people say over 50 or over 55, don't go into many of our cities on Thursday, Friday and Saturday night because they're increasingly uncontrollable. Uncontrollable. And the interesting thing is people have got money to get smashed. Many towns in the south in particular, where there's a lot of this trashy money about, in Leeds as well and uh, in other provincial centres, but you see them. It's hard work for four days and then they're on drugs for the smash out on the Friday and the Saturday. And the only discipline in their lives, the only methodological thing that gets them out of bed on a certain time, is work. Work on the Monday and then you work through it and then the blowout and so on and so on and so on. All of it, on the whole, based upon debt-based financing of one sort or another. As we no longer make anything but we're always selling. But the selling has, is faltering and shuddering. And stopping. And the one chance is that at this moment, or in this time, and in these years, people will wonder, not just about this economic crisis, about which I've spoken possibly too much, but also all of the other things that are going on and have gone on for the last 50 years. The sad truth is that many people have to have a reverse and have to have a bit of pain, basically, to get them to see any sense. All of our people have moaned for 50 years. Moaned in their cups, moaned in the pub, moaned amongst people they know, because uh, you know, it's a certain circle beyond which people are frightened to be politically incorrect, quote-unquote. A term that 20 years ago didn't even exist. Except amongst extreme left theorists in France, in the United States and elsewhere. Amazing example of something that Trotsky developed at one level, and that the uh, Berkeley and French revolutionaries in the late 1960s developed, that was this big, that was... 1% of people would have known what political correctness was in 1978. Now school children know when they've made an incorrect remark. It's an extraordinary example where you can take an idea from the absolute fringes, from the fringes of the fringes, and it can become the mindset of an entire society. Because once you have a mixed-based society, you just have to keep control. That's all it's about. And you have to stop people having certain thoughts that can lead to conflict, because you're in a sort of tone down the anger management situation all the time. In Birmingham, all the, all the political class does is negotiate between the groups so that they won't fight. And that there's a common denominator. We just keep it together. The logic of Basra. But it's not Basra, it's Birmingham. And it's inner Birmingham. And it's inner it's Slough. And it's inner London. And it's inner Cardiff. And yes, it is. And it's inner Glasgow. And it's Leeds. And it's everywhere. Chapel Town in Leeds, absolutely no difference. 
Moss Side and Rushfield in Manchester. Absolutely no different. No different at all. And if the, we have been sleepwalking into this for 50 to 60 years. A few politicians, a few eccentric Tories like Alan Clark, a few devastating minds like Enoch Powell mentioned earlier, spoke 40 years ago. No one else, no one else said it. They all thought it. They all thought it, but no one else said it. And we've got this extraordinary example where we have sleepwalked into what might be coming. And almost nobody in our political class, except for Thatcher, who made two synthetic speeches that she didn't really entirely believe in, in order to undercut the national vote in 1979, and that she reneged upon later. Apart from her, nobody in the mainstream at all, it's not so much even mentioned these areas. The fact that the whole country's been demographically transformed is a bit of an issue, isn't it? It's not just a sort of minor thing, which London Borough gets the Olympics or something, you know, whether you think council tax is fair. It's a bit of a issue, isn't it? It's a sort of fundamental, it's an elephant in the room. And yet no one can mention it. And indeed you are removed. You're removed from Cameron's front bench for mentioning it in certain ways. When we've got a Labour minister now called Willis, who's opening his mouth a little bit about immigration. He was hidden away for a week because they didn't want him on question time, because they haven't formulated their policy on that. We said, we need to get a grip, Mr Willis said, on immigration. We need to get a grip. We need to get a grip on Willis, never mind on immigration, don't you? You know, the doors have been not just opened, but slung opened. The sort of nationality's been thrown away in the last 30 to 50 years, and Willis is saying what we need, like Cameron, is a few quotas, a few quotas for elite workers. There's a million illegal workers just in the south of England alone. So having a few quotas is not going to do any good at all. The only way in which you can deal with these sorts of problems is to have a new political class. Yeah, yeah. And it's to have a new political class. That's not what they said at Yeats, that's not what they said on the Somme, 
They want a bayonet which saves some European enemy who ultimately wasn't really our enemy in the fullness of time as things have worked out. People didn't say, I'm giving you this for tolerance and the values of inclusion. They didn't say that because it's a lie and because it's not true. And it wasn't true for German troopers or Belgian or Austrian or French or ourselves. It's not true. When American napalms, they don't use the term napalm anymore, it's white phosphorus. When they wipe phosphorus a village in Iraq, they're doing it for tolerance and reasons of equality and to give these people liberality and the chance to vote for their own warlord. But in actual fact, it's a lie. It's a hypocritical lie. When we run an empire, we were more honest about it. We'd engage in all that fluff and nonsense. But the time to talk about colonisation is when we talk about the reverse colonisation that's gone on for 40 to 50 years. And there's no escape, not here in, in parts of rural North Wales, or the far-flung west of England, or parts of East Anglia which are underpopulated and so on. There'll be 70 million in this country soon. 70 million. Maybe 100 million. You remember those old science fiction films in the 1950s and 60s where you can hardly turn around because there's so many people, you know, there's an elbow in your fist and in your face and this sort of thing. This is what's coming. Go to Oxford Street now, you can't move as all these people are seething of every race, of every culture, of every faith, of every kind. All in one scraped stew. The police running around. Police, they wear these fluorescent yellow jackets, don't you? But when you want one, you can never get one. And the security officers that come along can't even make an arrest. They can watch you behaving criminally and warn you warn you that you might be arrested. <laughs> and in actual fact, this is how, this is how sort of low we got. The police are firemen. The police come after it's over and sweep up the glass. They don't really want to get involved, particularly. It's dog-eat-dog, dog, and unlike American cities, we're disarmed. The criminals have weapons, the state has weapons, and we're stood there in the middle as it's all going off. So, the situation is quite dire in many ways. But our people still have political opportunities to express their disinclination to go along with what's being done. They still have that option. It's still there. Yeah. And there is a degree to which, if they will not respond to the forms of chaos that are enveloping this society now, even Cameron says this society is broken. You know, a society that aborts 200,000 a year, where national service doesn't exist and is a dim and distant memory, where youths terrorise city and town centres and people in the older generations are terrified even to confront them, where your children end up speaking like Jamaican gangsters if they go to an inner city comprehensive, where uh, men can marry each other and adopt children, and this sort of thing. We're living in this society like where almost every value that was considered as normative before 1960 has been reversed. Being reversed, it's turned on its head. And people have swallowed it a bit, and they've gone along, and there's been a little bit of passive resistance, and they've slid a bit further, and so on. We've ended up with something that everyone said could never happen. And that's a left-wing capitalist society. It's very peculiar, but that's what's happened. At the beginning of the 20th century, if you'd have said that, they'd have said that, man. Society, but that's what we've got. The values of the old left, equality for all, everyone can come here, men can marry each other, practices and dirty word, there are no elites, 
nature doesn't exist, da-da-da, tied to a market, tied to a radical market mechanism. All the left didn't realise is that capitalism does have a tendency to clear the market at the lowest level of consumption, at the lowest price. The idea that capitalism is right-wing per se, which the moderate right and the left have basically agreed with each other on for most of the last century, isn't entirely true. We have a situation now where the capitalism is failing and the left-wing ideology is poisoning us to death. And we have a choice. We have a choice to do something about it or nothing about it. My choice is to stand up here. Most people went to the university I did will do nothing. Will do nothing at all. They're hiding. They're right. They're terrified. They are terrified. Not just a few anarchists that are a bit of a punch-up in the East End, but they are morally terrified to oppose what exists. It's an extraordinary moral fear in the people that once seem to fear nothing, you know, in battle and this sort of thing. But it's now as a sort of new type of courage is acquired. And we'll see if the Welsh or the English or the Scottish or the Irish have it. And that's a sort of moral courage, basically, to stand up against an elite and its false values, like people did in Eastern Europe during the era of Soviet occupation. They, they didn't like Solzhenitsyn Sakharov then, you know. When you saw one of those dissidents coming towards you, you think, oh no, it's one of them. Because uh, the secret police will be watching, everyone will be watching. You do everything to, you know, make sure that this bloke didn't acknowledge you in the street. This sort of thing. Of course, after the transformation, they will say, oh, Andrea, you know, and Alexander, my brother, and this sort of thing. Not in the days when it mattered. And this is partly what it is. Now, in the West, we fought for freedom of speech and we don't have any, even in our own country. We fought against foreign European dictators and we're dictated to by liberals who own the media and who appear every night. We say the slightest thing about what's gone on that aren't in terms that can entrap us in relation to all the laws that have been passed and we're a villain, a villain, and a demon, you know, that needs to be dragged off somewhere. And this sort of thing. Whereas the real villains are those sitting in the House of Commons and sitting in the House of Lords and sitting in the European Parliament and sitting in the judiciary. One thing that interests me is the Archbishop of Canterbury recently. The Archbishop of Canterbury. That's Sharia law should be introduced into this country. After a good church supper at sort of eight Canterbury, pushes the plate away like is it an Oxford college, and says, Sharia law, picking his teeth, you know, Sharia law. What do you think about that then? I mean, not, not the hands off, the testicles off, the head off, no, no, none of that. Just a bit of jurisprudence, just the property laws between people. What do you think? What do you think? What do you think, Canon Carruthers Smythe? What do you think about that? A bit of Sharia law. And he says, look, you know, I'm not a Christian. But the Archbishop of Canterbury is supposed to guard the faith which he says he's the leader of in the national society, which he says he's the major spiritual minister for. And he's prepared to give it all away. Just as an idea, just as a sort of academic idea, he's just floating. This idea over dinner, just going to get a bit of chicken out of my teeth, you know? This sort of idea. And this is because, he's another Blair appointee, he's one of these endless wets and liberal weaklings that are sort of mildly self-detesting, would all regard us as monsters linked to the past and the politics of identity, these appalling reactionaries, oh, I don't want to be anywhere near them, you know, this sort of thing. This is their attitude. But the truth is that they don't believe in, their, uh, in the identities they even profess. They, uh, they believe in deconstruction and theories like this in academic life. They've got rid of all these things. 
These people think England and Wales and Ireland and Scotland and Britain is a puddle. It's a puddle. I want to step out to the world. I want to go global. Well, I've got a message for people like the Archbishop. One of his predecessors who actually criticised him on the issue of Sharia law, Kerry, he went to the Sudan. He went to the Sudan. And when he wanted to fly over the Islamist part of the Sudan as an Islamic government, they said they'd shoot his plane down. And he said, what? I'm a man of the cloth. You're the man of the book. You're going to shoot my plane down. He said, you're giving supper to our enemies in the south. He said, all right. And, you know, so he went round another way. He went round to secure his room. And he arrived, and there were 100,000 black southern Sudanese, all Christian, and all had their machetes and their pangas out, these enormous meat axes that they used to cleave an opponent through. And they were all chanted and chanted. They're members of a group called the Southern the Sudanese Liberation Army, the SLA. And they all came up to him, and they chanted through their languages, which was related to him by our interpreters, of course, Oh, great white father, oh, great white father, tell us how to kill the Muslims and rape their women. <laughs> yes! And this was a form of interfaith dialogue that Kerry wasn't too experienced of. This was a form of ecumenism of the sort he hadn't experienced before. And he was shocked, deeply shocked, because what these ninnies don't believe is that the world is not constructed as they imagine it to be. That it's not a, a, a nice place. That it's a, a place of fury. And as our people drag their sort of Asda bags, you know, sort of through the puddles in the rain, they've got to realise that although the Sudan's a long way away, that there are realities there that are closer to what may be coming for all of us than they would like to imagine. There's no such thing as a free lunch. There's no such thing, to quote a novel from the 60s, as a naked lunch. You often got to seize the plate to get a bit of lunch in this life. No other group will stand with us and will give us house room if we fall. The groups in this world that people have less respect for are those who once ruled. And we once ruled a quarter of this earth. And they then fall away. And they then fall away. And the others get there to kick you on the way down because they remember when you were up there. And that's going to happen to America very soon. We must be certain it doesn't happen to us. We need to revive as a people. We need to show some vigour and some strength again. We need to show some will again. We need to show some patriotism again. As our people huddle before the conformity of the television, some of them secretly think these thoughts. It's time no longer to be secret about them. It's time no longer to be sort of locked in rooms with mildly quote-unquote incorrect thoughts. People have to ventilate those thoughts. And they begin in their own life. This idea individuals are no power is false. If you say no to political correctness, the liberal ideology that surrounds us, in any way, in any way, from the smallest thing, it has an effect. It creates a space around you. People go, oh God, it's one of them, you know. And they sort of slightly move away, you know. Um, it's sort of, when you start in one area, it feeds upon itself. All people begin, in a sense, a radical direction, less radical, at the beginning or the commencement of it. That's where our people are, faffy, confused, broken down, alone, wondering what's going on, wondering if they can move to escape it, wondering if they sort of, uh, the buyout deal on their mortgage is safe or not, worried, trusting the political class. One of the interesting things that has happened is that the breakdown of the class loyalty to the big blocks is ongoing and radical. There's part of the uh, white working class now that loathes and detests Labour to a degree many Labour councillors and politicians will be frightened to know. 
That's why they don't go on those estates anymore. They're frightened to go on them. They're frightened to go on them. And yet everyone sort of knows that, in a way, all three parties have merged into each other. That they will support each other as they do in the GLA. The British National Party got one member elected to the Greater London Assembly, and all the others, all the others, Green, Tory, Labour, Liberal, when Barnbrook, who's our councillor, there goes in the building, it's horror. <laughs> it's a leper has appeared before us. Johnson puts his fat, his fingers over his eyes. He doesn't even want to acknowledge the chap in the room. When percent far-right people were elected to the European Assembly, whenever a member of the Austrian Freedom Party came in the room, Robin Cook, when he was alive, prior to our unfortunate visit to a Scottish mountain, used to turn his back. Used to turn his back rather than acknowledge their presence in the room. But that's also fear. They're frightened. The truth. They're frightened what might be coming for them because of what they've given away. <laughs> Our glory could yet still be before us 
We have to cease thinking that we're a people with a great past and it's all going to go. Like the Greeks, it's just a few statues and a few monuments and it's all downhill. It doesn't have to be downhill. Yeah. What we have to do is to revive and to think that we can revive. And to do this, we have to sweep out the politicians who now exist. We have to get rid of the Tories in the south of England. We have to get rid of Labour in the north of England. We have to get rid of Labour in Wales. We have to get rid of Plaid in Wales. We have to get rid of the uh, pseudo-Celtic nationalists in Scotland, the SNP. We've already got rid of Ron Davies here in Wales, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Good old Ron. He, I, I've been informed by the uh, North Welsh organiser that he has a new movement. If you pardon the phrase, Wales. <laughs> forward Wales. That's a good slogan, isn't it? Forward Wales. Fair enough. I'm sure there's a radical absence of female members in that group. <laughs> but all joking aside, people need something different, and it's not going to be UKIP. They're channelers, as I call them. They're all these people who say, oh, well, a little bit patriotic, just a little bit, a little bit, you know. In Wales, in England, I'll vote EU. My father said to me a couple of years ago, I've done something really extreme. I said, cut me out of the wheel. You know, what? What have you done? And he said, I voted for UKIP. UKIP! And I thought, well, um, But then I thought, for somebody who's only ever voted Tory, in some ways that's a radical gesture. Because you might vote somebody else after that. It's only one step beyond, one step beyond to terror. One step beyond that <laughs> demonic line. But once you've crossed, there's a sense, you've sort of got to the edge of the zebra, haven't you? You, you, you? There's a truck coming and you feel you can't cross yet. But it's interesting. If all of those millions, you pile up all those useless UKIP votes, and what have they done for anyone since they got in the European Parliament, eh? You can speak for two minutes. That's all you can do as a Euro MP. You get a big wedge and you speak for two minutes. Only if you form a block. They won't go with the far right. They sit on their own. It's meaningless. But it's a break in the old structure. Yeah. Even the BBC regards UKIP as dangerous, dangerous. <laughs> and, but they're channeling all of that patriotism, even that EU vote. And if it breaks out beyond them, it's very, very interesting what could happen. BBC ran a deep poll about six months ago, in which they said that 60 to 70% of people were frightened of inter-ethnic violence in the society. But people thought the British National Party was... Slightly nasty and extreme, but they were telling the truth, unlike the other parties. And they said that Powell may well have been right. BBC was shot rigid by this. It was a deep poll of what people really thought when they were quite relaxed. And that they feared for their future. And this was before the economic crisis had begun to grip. This is the reality under all the lies and the smokescreen and the punch and duty value at Westminster. This is the reality. But if people want to change it, they know what they have to do. They have to leaflet and canvas for this organisation. They have to stand for this organisation. They have to come up here and speak. And next time, somebody from the audience, come up, you know, confront the terror, you know, come up into the lights and speak. It's not as bad as all that. People have to do these sorts of things, because if they won't do these sorts of things, in 50 years, there'll be no coherent society left. This is the time, in this 20-year to 30-year period. If there is, a large block of British national and right-wing MPs in the parliaments and structures that have been created in this society, in the coming generation, it can be turned around, it can be changed. The whole system fears that this could occur. 
we must make sure that it does occur yeah, here in Wales and in Britain. This country is not over, we are still alive, there is still plenty to do. I ask you to support this party, to support our people, to support their culture, to support our future. Thank you very much.